Open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. Uh, it's the second one that we, that we have. We know he wrote a few more, but this is the second one we have. And, um, and yeah, let's read it together. It's verses 1 through 7 is what we're going to be reading tonight and unpacking as we talk about faith for our fourth week. The Apostle Paul says this, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we're still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what's mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so we're always of good courage. We know that while we're home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Friends, in order to, in order to make sense of this passage, you've got to know about the tent. Okay, um, th this is such a common image for the people of Israel, the tent or the tabernacle or the temple, all referring to the same thing. We'll get to that. So much of the New Testament, this like, if, I want you to sort of visualize this if you're watching this and not listening to it. This right here is the New Testament. This is the old. Like two thirds of the Bible is here. Many of us don't read it, don't hear sermons about it. Two thirds of the Bible is here. And this third is riffing off this two-thirds. So much so that like a book like Revelation, of that this vision that the Apostle John had, is 80% quotes of the Old Testament. It's like already a wild book. It's way more wild if we don't know any of the Old Testament. When Paul is talking to the people in Corinth about intent, he knows what that image means and does to them. What, what kinds of things are stirred up specifically to the Jewish people within their midst. And so I need to tell you a little bit about that image. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt under slavery to the base of Mount Sinai, and he graciously gave them the law, telling them of who they were going to be, because they're not going to be like everybody else, and they're not going to be like the Egyptians that they came from. He, he wants them to live in a new way, in such a way that they're a light to the world, a city on a hill, that, that, that through them all the people of the earth would be blessed. And so there's a way of life set out for them. This is what God was doing, right? In the midst of that, he also tells them he wants them to build a tent. They call it a tabernacle. Build this tent, for it will be the place where I will dwell with you. And so the Israelites got to work. God sent his spirit uh, to equip artisans and artists and craftsmen, and, they, and they, they wove together these curtains and made poles and tables and utensils and did artwork, and, and they made this tent. And a couple of things are really important about this. On one hand, God's with them in their midst. That's bonkers. He's with them in their midst. And there's a point in history when the Israelites could say, 50 yards over there to the left, that's where God is with us. Crazy, right? That's cool. Also, it's temporary. Like, like it's supposed to be put into the ground with tent pegs. And God tells them that he's going to lead them with a, you know, a pillar of fire and smoke. And, 
in such a way that there's going to be times they'd wake up in the morning and God says, let's get out of here. And they got to pack this thing up and move. So it's like a mobile home or like a, a tent. This thing is portable. It's not supposed to be permanent. And so the entire time that God's dwelling with them in this tent, they know it's not always going to be this way. So don't get too comfortable. Don't get too comfortable. It's not always going to be this way. Later on, you know, David wanted to make, uh, turn the tabernacle into a temple. God said no because his hands were too bloody from war. Solomon built it. God did not seem to want to do this, but he relented and let them build it. Uh, they built this temple in 586 BC, so like 2,600 years ago. It was destroyed 70 years later under the, under the you might read about it in Ezra and Nehemiah in your Bible. There's a new temple that's built. And over the course of the next 500 years, that temple had been sort of adapted and built a little bit more and expanded. And by the time Jesus came, the second temple was pretty good size. By the time this letter is written to the second Corinthians, though, the temple's been destroyed and there's no longer a tabernacle. There's no longer a temple. Not, not in the way they're thinking, okay? So, listen. Their tent had been destroyed uh, in its tent form and in its temple form. There's a, it was good. It wasn't bad. God dwelt with them. It's a great thing. They longed for that. What they wanted was something that couldn't be destroyed. They didn't want not a tent or a tabernacle. They wanted one that would never be destroyed. So that's the image in their head of the tent or tabernacle. What Paul is doing in this letter is he's taking that imagery and he's mapping it onto your body. And he's saying, let me read that again with this in mind. For we know that if the tent, this, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have one from God, a, a building from God, a house not made with hands. Verse two, listen to this. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. When he says, for in this tent we grow, I want you to do something right now. I want you to look at your hands. This is the tent he's talking about. Your, your body. The, 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 the bones and the muscle and the sinew and the, the flesh and the, the blood coursing through your veins. The chemical reactions firing off in your brains. The, the, the density, the mass, the space that you take up in the universe. This is the tent. And in this one, in this one we groan. Well, this is what we're going to land on, but so I'm going to come back to that. We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. So Paul's about to talk about being naked and be further clothed. And here's the idea. Paul actually has a, a relatively complicated argument. If you, if you keep reading the Bible, you'll find like in Philippians, he has something similar that he says to this. There's a sense in which he goes, listen, it would be better for me to die and just be with the Lord. I don't know if all of us can say that or would say that. If you read 2 Corinthians 11 and you see what Paul has gone through in his life, you can see why he says, I would rather just be with God right now because I keep getting wrecked. I, he, Paul lived a horrific life that none of us would want. And he says in Philippians, I'd rather be just with the Lord right now. Ultimately, what Paul's looking forward to, he says here, is actually his resurrection body. It's a little complex because he's like, I'd rather be with the Lord than here, but I'd rather have my resurrected body than anything else and be with the Lord physically in my flesh. Okay, that's, I realize it's a little bit complicated, especially if you haven't heard of the overwhelming amount of times the New Testament promises about our resurrection body are present to you. 
okay, or presented to you. Um, but Paul, it's really interesting. Paul says that we're naked now, and he doesn't mean by that we literally have no clothing. He means we're vulnerable. He means we can break that we, we, we are vulnerable in a way that we can get hurt in the world. We're not protected from things outside in these bodies. We can die. Nakedness also for an Israelite conjures up the image of shame. Go all the way back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve became aware of their nakedness in the fallen world, they felt ashamed. And so Paul is probably addressing both of these things. Not only can we die, but we feel shame. And because of these things, we groan for something more not something less. Because Paul's not looking forward to getting rid of our body and having something else. He's saying, I want more of this. What if my body is not a body enough yet? What if it's, what if it's, it's never, well, this, I'll just use the language he uses. He wants the body of death to be swallowed up by life. Or in, his, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, what would it look like for our mortal bodies to don an immortal quality? And when he looks forward to the resurrection, he's imagining his body being made new, having more. Think of Jesus' resurrection. He was born into a world with a body that he could die in. And he was raised in a body that would live forever and not die. And yet when his friends saw him, they recognized him as Jesus. There's a little mystery there. But he was Jesus. And he had a physical body. He had bones and hands. He even had wounds still in his body as a, a memory of the love that he poured out for us on the cross. It's his same body, but now it's donned an immortal quality. There's mystery to this that I'd love to get into with you. If you want to like DM me or like reach out to me, we could talk about all sorts of things about the resurrected body and implications for that. What I want you to see from the Apostle Paul is he says, we don't have those bodies yet. We still get wounded. We still get hurt. We can still die and we still feel shame. And so we groan. In verse 5, he says, now listen, this is exactly the plan God set out for us. Think about the son who came this way. He like us, us like him. We have bodies that can die, but they will be raised imperishable. And God has given us his spirit as a guarantee. It's why we need to see the spirit alive and at work in our lives, not just for the sake of mission, but also for the sake of our own confidence. Oh my gosh, more than a mission trip, retreat, great worship service, cool Bible passage, Spotify playlists, or anything else, the thing that will give you the most confidence that God's promises are real to you is your transformed life. When you see the Spirit of God at work in you, transforming you and making you new, more kind, more peaceable, more patient, more good, loving, more self-controlled, Friends, in our communities together, we need to be pointing out where we see the Spirit of God at work. We need to be affirming that in one another, championing that one another, fanning those embers and flames that we might have confidence that God's promises in us are real because we gain confidence when we, and, and we gain boldness and courage and, and, and trust when we see God transform our lives. So let's let that be on display and speak to it and encourage it in each other, please. Because don't we need some confidence right now? Paul says in verse 6, we're always of good courage. 
or confidence, depending on your translation. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Here's the, here's the point. Right now, Christian, you walk by faith and not by sight. That's not a command. That's not you should walk by faith and not by sight. You do walk by faith and not by sight. You do not have yet, I do not have yet, all the promises that Jesus has promised for me or for you. We, have, we, we hold fast to the hope that we have in Jesus, that he is holding on to, the, to all the things that he wants to give us securely that we might one day walk in them and have by sight what we only now have by faith, but we don't have it yet. Why is this so important? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, many of us believe, for some reason, we believe that we're supposed to be okay with the way things are in the world. No, emphatically, we're not. We are not supposed to be okay with the way things are in the world, friends. The pain and suffering out there, for sure. And if that's the thing that needs to shake you up, let it. People are dying all over the world. The pandemic is really hard. It's not even close to as hard as it's been for people in most of the world. I'm not trying to say that to shame us. I'm saying it's hard. The whole world is groaning, Paul says. The whole world. It's groaning with pains like childbirth, he says. Waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. Sorry, I just have to say it because it's such a freaking cool line. But it's, we're not, we should not be okay with the way the world is. With people suffering and dying at all and definitely not needlessly or because of injustice. And, 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 but for many of us, for all of us, probably if we're sober and self-aware enough, we have enough experience in our own personal lives to know that it's not okay. The, uh, namely, the death that we experience in our life, the ways in which our lives are not in alignment with God's kingdom, the kinds of injustice that we experience in our families and with our friends, the ways that we experience loneliness and despair, it is not okay. And God forbid that his people try to manage it or try to, try to manage our sense of contentment to, to sort of set our expectations lower and just learn to be okay with the world. God forbid. We believe that God loves his creation and that he's making all things new. Why would we shut up about it and try to say, maybe, it's, maybe as good as it gets is I get married one day before I'm 30. Maybe as good as it gets is I have like a middle management job making upper, you know, 80s or, or you know, six figures or whatever your number is. Like, God forbid that we're okay with living 90 years before we die. God forbid we're ever okay with death. Paul says, in this body, in this tent, we groan. And Christians, so many people around the world are already groaning. And we need to groan with them. We need, to, we need to not sort of give them advice and tell them how they can be okay with the world as it is, or they can fix it just with time, or money, or another relationship, or a new job, or a little self-respect, or cleaning themselves up. We should groan with them and say, come Lord Jesus, because nothing in this world is going to satisfy me 
now that you have awakened my desire and my knowledge of better things than I could have ever hoped for. You know, friends, when I'm coming home and I'm hungry, the thought of food makes me more hungry, not less. Smelling it makes me more hungry and not less. Us pulling out plates and the hardest time for anybody in my family to not eat is when we're all waiting for everybody to get their food so we can pray. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's crazy. But if the food wasn't in front of us, I feel like we could wait another you know, couple of hours because we wouldn't imagine it. I'm bringing this up to say there's an interesting dynamic that happens. When the thing that we want we gets closer to our imagination and to our senses, it actually increases our discontent and our uncomfortability with the way things currently are. Do you see that? I think we've got this habit, I'll call it, I don't know, of like trying to lower our expectations so that we don't feel so uncomfortable, so that we're not disappointed or something. What would it look like if Christians raised their freaking expectations to the level of heaven and decided because of that they would never be satisfied with anything less? We're about to enter into the season of Lent tomorrow where Christians set aside 46 days. It's really 40 days plus six Sundays because on Sundays you don't fast or mourn. It's a day of celebration. So, But 40 days of the next 46, a lot of Christians around the world will fast and mourn and, and practice things to remember Christ's suffering in order that we might celebrate His resurrection with, with fervor during the Easter season. It's a great time to learn how to groan, friends. We don't groan because that's what we want. We groan because we want something better. I think far too many of us have tried to figure out how to be okay with the way the world is. Christian, what would it look like to not be okay? And to groan. And to, and to recognize that we don't have by sight what is promised to us in and by faith. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. And so when we're presented with anything that the world offers us that says it can satisfy us, I say, nope, I'm a sojourner and I'm an exile on this world. And though God, I'm a quote C.S. Lewis, though God may satisfy us with many pleasant ends along the way, I-N-N-S, ends, we must never mistake them for the final destination. We get up the next morning and we keep going with our face bent toward the sun. Christian, what would it look like to groan? What would it look like to come alongside each other and groan and not try to fix each other, but to say, yeah, me too. I hope, I hope that one day, I trust that one day, I have faith that one day, death will be swallowed up in life. <laughs> 